Well, wow, it feels so empty in here. This is such a strange thing to look out and see so many. I know that, that people, if this was yesterday, I would understand with all that rain, but this is strange. So um, we have got just a great message out of this chapter 8 of Acts. And um, the homework the, it was a lot, it seemed like to me, particularly where Kay took us back again to look at the message of Jesus and uh, what that gospel message is, and then adding in on top of that, then all the new things that we're seeing in the chapter 8 account. So what we are going to do is we are going to go back and look at the basic principle of the message. We want to we want to always make sure that as we're moving through the book of Acts that we are looking at it from the whole not, as well as the pieces, right? So it, it's easy to get lost in a chapter and isolate it from everything else previous and after, right? Um, Craig and I were talking a little bit earlier about the fact that I wish uh, for instance, that maybe there had even been some preliminary work done before we moved into the book of Acts to prepare us for a better understanding of certain subjects, like baptism, for instance, would have been one. I would have loved, and, and if I ever teach it again, and Lord willing, I will, um, I would like to add week one, um, uh, maybe even just on my own, I would do my own work and then come and present it as at Lesson Zero. But talk about the historical understanding of baptism within the Jewish culture, which is what these people are, who, uh, you know, and Jesus' own baptism, for instance, looking at that to see why did Jesus himself get baptized and what was the purpose in that, the Jewish culture of that, and how Jesus says it fulfilled all righteousness, and also he was there to not... um, abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So this was part of fulfilling the law and the prophets for, for him. Um, it is valuable when we don't lose the whole counsel of God's word as we are looking at subjects. So with that, I'm going to just one time again remind us of those principles of how to interpret scripture, because chapter 8 again has another difficulty in it, potentially for some. Um, number one, the, the first rule is that, that context is king, correct? So the immediate context rules for interpretation, and we do know that. But along with that, it's not just the immediate context, but it's the whole counsel of God's word that needs to be brought in. Um, my question to you would be, when you study a subject in the word of God, let's just throw out, uh, end time events. Are all those events given to us in one location? No. Um, what about covenant? Do we get all information about covenant in Genesis 15 where Abraham cuts the first covenant? Is everything in its totality given to us there? No. Okay. So baptism is another one of those subjects. Also salvation itself is another one of those things. Uh, the, the one thing that we're going to come up against this morning is that word believe, that he believed, right? And so you have to say, but what does believing mean? in the context, the whole counsel of God's word context. So those are two rules. Yes, your immediate context rules for interpretation, but don't forget the whole counsel of God's word, right? And therefore, thirdly, what happens then is you don't violate your known doctrine, right? In a way, not violating your known doctrine means that you have to go to the whole counsel of God's word. 
correct? And bring in all the pieces and lay them in. Now, if you come to a place where you're at a stalemate, then you let your immediate context rule for your interpretation. What is your author's purpose? Who's the recipients? What's the historical setting of what's going on at the moment? So that when you've got to make a choice, you pick the one that's obvious for the context, right? Correct? Does everybody follow those rules in their mind? So it's great. So we just keep repeating these rules so that you keep remembering them. Well, we're in a situation this morning where, again, we're going to have to remember that. We're going to have to remember that there's the whole counsel of God's word. Don't violate your known doctrines. And when it comes to the book of Acts, there's a lot of subjects that are coming up. Throw out some subjects that you see are going on in chapter 8. Tell me what you've seen in chapter 8 so far. I'm sorry, say it again. Baptism. Baptism is one, obviously. Okay, how do you, does a person, what, what is the catalyst through which a person receives the Holy Spirit? What is the conflict that looks like is presented in chapter 8, potentially? You have to have an apostle come and lay on hands. You know, in the laying on of hands, you know, we're not trying to make light of it or, or dismiss it. It had its purpose, but you have to interpret the purpose for that laying on of hands in light of what we're examining here. Uh-huh. And, and we need to keep in mind that it's also the first believers of the Samaritans. That's right. So the other context to this is this is the first of something that's brand new. First and foremost, the church itself is brand new. So that was a first, and that's what we saw in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit fell and they were the speaking in tongues, and Peter stands up and makes this confession. He explains to them what they're seeing, right? Because it's something new. Why did the Spirit, when it fell, came in such a dramatic way? The, t- the tongues of fire and the people speaking in tongues. Well, what was that design? Well, it did. It, the design was so that Peter would be able to stand up and make a proclamation, right? Now, who was Peter? He's one of the apostles, one of the 12, right? Uh, One of the things that we predetermined about the 12 uh, early on in our study is about their function in the church, right? We're talking about their function. What is their design function in the church? Prayer and the teaching of the word. Now, we got that one out of last week's homework, correct? Um, Also, we know from looking at uh, in uh, Revelation... Chapter 21, I think it is. We see about the apostles, one of the truths is, is that where are their names found? On, on the foundation of, of the, the um, temple, right? Or the, of the new city, Jeru- the new Jerusalem. So we know that they're, they're a foundation imagery for us, that they have to do with the foundation. So we're going to try to build on this just understanding a little bit better. What is the design function of the 12? What seems to make them distinctive in this process of the birthing of the church, right? And was there any teaching to them previously through Jesus himself that told them that there would be some significance about the things that they would do in the founding of this new thing called the church. So we're going to look at some of those things. And although some of those were not in your homework, they're going to be very familiar to you. So I don't think it's going to be a stretch for you to jump in there with with me on it. And we'll just take a quick look. All right. Then beyond that, we're going to move forward and we're going to look at the idea of, uh, or the subject of another person. Who Who is one of the most outstanding characters in this particular chapter? Simon. And he's, he can be a problem for us. 
outstanding, but he said he was prominent. He was the, what, basically, he's a gift, right? He's, he's, um, he's the great power of God, after all, right? And he liked that title, it seems like. So we're going to talk about Simon and look at what we see the text tells us. And so what we're going to try to do is we're going to identify how he's described to us by God so that we see his character and his, his, his role in society, what he was like as a person. And then we're going to see what happened in his believing, but then we're going to follow it up with then what was the response of Peter. And it's very interesting. I do think there's a contrast in here between the, Peter's response to him and Peter's response to the other masses. What did you see was the contrast? When he goes to the, when Peter comes, what does he do for the masses who have believed? He lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. But when it came to Peter's response to Simon, what does he do or say? Yeah, he, he gives him a scathing um, indictment, basically. And I, lo- I love that verse probably the most of all. It, to me, it's one of the most declarative things he says in there, that your heart is not right with God. So we're going to look at all that. And one of the things that I can say that was not part of the homework, but it would have been really beneficial, and I'm praying that some of you did, which would be word studies on all those things that Peter says about him. Did, Martha's going, yes, yeah, she's shaking her head, yes. Did you do some word study? Oh, oh, okay. Well, we're going to do that together right now. Okay, we're not going to obviously look them up, but we are going to discuss them. And I'll give you what I have um, so far in my. And I gave you very, very teeny weeny um, definitions on my chart, but I'm going to leave it to you to do this work, where it's pages and pages, right? Of of word studies, I know, I know, overkill, I can't, I'm an overachiever, what can I say, I can't help myself, okay, um, and aren't you glad, because then I have something to talk about when I stand up here, okay, <laughs> all right, well, let's get started, let's start with the message, we know that a case homework assignment to us, first of all, was to make sure that we continue to build on that t- um, list on the, in the name of Jesus Christ, right, she wanted us to look at that, later then, she also asked us to look at um, how the gospel, the essentials of the gospel are presented to us in the book of Acts. Since it's a birthing of something brand new, right? And we're seeing the, the essentials then of what salvation is supposed to be based upon, what is being proclaimed, what is being taught. So we, on page 96, let's flip my book open to 96, so I have it here. I got so much stuff here, I can't even find where I'm supposed to be. Okay, so we're going to start in page 96. It actually opens up the question. It starts on 95. It says, now let's compare the points of the gospel with what Peter has been preaching. So she, she, talked, she gave us a 1 Corinthians verse to talk about. And she said, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8 are the ingredients or the, those main points that need to be covered when you are sharing the gospel, right? This is an, a great training manual for people who are evangelical, like to go into the mission field. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, it gives that to us. And then she took us back into the book of Acts and says, well, what does Acts teach us? So what I want to do is, you looked at 1 Corinthians 8. Tell me what did you see in 1 Corinthians 8? What are some of the essentials that were told to you in there about 
the gospel message that if you're going to give the gospel, what might be these essential points? Now, this is not to say that you will give every one of these points every time. Okay. Yes, Debbie. Amen. Christ died for our sins. According to now, just by making that one statement alone, what might then the, the next subject be? Sin itself. Well, what's, what's sin and who's a sinner? And I don't sin. I'm a good person, right? So now you can discuss the subject of sin. And Romans might be a great place to jump to for all have sinned, right? And fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so the gospel is that you, that you, are, that you are saved and that he died for our sins. Okay, what else? Okay, now why is that a significant point that they need to know and also confess as being true? Mm-hmm. There you go. Because it has to do with the power of who he was to overcome death, which is significant because he has the, quote, first fruits of the resurrection, then is... Yeah, I was going to say, how, what hope is there for us if he did not? What did 1 Corinthians 15? Uh, we didn't go on into that later, but in 1 Corinthians 15, it's all about resurrection from the dead. By the way, I'm just going to throw this out here. 1 Corinthians 15, when you see it talking about the resurrection, put on there in your footnotes or in your column somewhere in your notes, resurrection from the dead. If you add mentally in your mind, every time you see resurrection from the dead... The physical deadness of the body, physical resurrection, that will help you a lot to, to not get hung up on misinterpreting some of the things that are being said there. Because this is talking about the physical body. This is not talking about um, a person who dies and goes to heaven, the spirit going to be with the Lord. This is talking about a, an event that's going to take place in the future when the physical body will be resurrected. Okay, So that's important to keep in mind when you're going through there. But... But the fact that Jesus died and was resurrected is a spiritual truth that must be acknowledged in order to really come into faith, right? Correct? Because it, it is part of the gospel message. Okay, what else? Okay, so we talked about that one. And he appeared to many alive. So he, he, he actually was, there were eyewitnesses to this account of the, of the record of this. Now, this can be an interesting subject that can come up with people because so often they're quite willing to listen to the historical records of any other person. But with the Bible, they don't believe it to be a historical record. And so what, what has to maybe come up with a person that wants to argue that point then is a good healthy in, uh, investigation about the the validity and the uh, the historical accuracy and the um, uh, credentialing basically of the word of God itself that it is a legitimate historical record and document which by the way his all kinds of historians and all kinds of archaeologists and all kinds of people throughout, and science themselves, they all use the Bible and have used the Bible throughout all generations as a starting point often to find truth, right? They go there to say, well, where is maybe the location of this city? And then they go and they go, oh, there's that city. How about that? It's just right where the Bible said it was. But then they'll turn right around in that same record and say, but the Bible's not true. It's really hysterically funny to me. But anyway, so that would be an apologetics that you might want to go into. 
Um, I saw a hand, but I didn't catch. Okay. All right. So then let's do this. Let's just go for the purpose of our, of our, um, our list that we're going to bounce off of this morning. Let's go into Acts 2. And we're just going to hang in that one thing. We could go through the whole thing, but it's pretty much repetitive, would you not say? You see, would you say that 1 Corinthians 15, if we're looking at the whole counsel of God's word, does it match up with what we've seen in the book of Acts thus far about the essentials of the gospel message that you need to give? Yes, it does. And I'm pointing this out because, again, it shows you the whole counsel of God's word. There's a balance in there that gives you this full picture, and it's in agreement with one another. So, the first thing we want to look then at first, uh, it's uh, Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at 22 to 24, verse 36, 38 to 40. That's the one that she gave us as our first Acts record, right? What do we see there are the essentials, again, of the message according to Acts. What we're going we're gonna to go ahead and make a list on the essentials of the gospel message according to Acts 22, or Acts chapter 2, verse 22 on. So the very first thing that's given to us in Acts 2, verse 22, is what? He was attested to them through, through miracles. Now, why might that be something that would be essential? Yes. Right. So what does that tell us in the book of Acts on the whole then where we're seeing even the apostles doing miracles and that there are miracles being performed there? That this is a truth that shows that God is with them, that God is giving approval or sanctioning or that it, and that it is God's power that is at work. It is not something. When the, when the apostles um, gave their testimony about uh, for instance, the healing of the lame man, what did they say when the people were gazing at them? Which is a, a good contrast to what we see with Simon even. But when they saw him, uh, them heal the lame man, what, did, what was their reply then to the masses? Well, don't look at me as if this is anything of myself, right? It's not of my own power or my own piety that this man is healed, correct? And he sent them right back to the gospel message and said, what healed that man? By faith in the name of Jesus Christ, this man stands here healed before you. Isn't that a a testimony? What a contrast that is to what we're seeing in Uh, chapter 8. So we see here the first point to the message is that Jesus uh, was attested by God. Attested by God with miracles signs and wonders or wonders and signs. I think I did it backwards but Still, same thing. Okay. That's in verse Acts 2, verse 22. I'm going to put on your Acts 2. Okay, verse 22. Now, the word attested, did anybody think to do a word study on that at any point in our study so far? Okay, let me... (laughs) I know I'm going to ask that a lot this morning because I did a ton of word studies, okay? Attested, do you have it there, James? Okay, there, so it's an accreditation, basically. God is giving accreditation to him, or God is certifying. Is that, was that the other word you just used? I forgot. Okay, well, my, my word study says show to be true or prove. 
established. There's a good word, establishing. So he was proven by God. Or he was attested by God. He, it was shown that it was true by God with miracle signs and wonders that Jesus was attested in that way, that who he says he is, he was proven to be so by the, the fact that he did these miracles. And we went back before and looked at John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 2, where Nicodemus makes that statement. And what was it? I'm going to drill this into your head until you guys get it. What did, what did um, Nicodemus say about Jesus when he came to him by night? Wow, you got it right there before you. Good job, James. He's got, he's got a computer hooked up and running. This is ha- very helpful. Yay, that's it. Oh, of course you do, James. I'm sorry. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Um, I want us to go to another one, though, that says it again in the same book, John chapter 5, verse 36 to 47, because I think this is another really good one that that, uh, affirms it. Again, whole counsel of God's word about this subject that the attesting of him by miracles and signs was an essential. This particular one is Jesus himself speaking, and he tells us what the purpose of the signs that he's doing is all about. Somebody read that out loud. Uh, John five thirty six to forty seven. Oh, yeah, oh, okay. yeah. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay. Now, one of the things that I liked about that verse is first he start he starts out right away saying that again, signs and wonders that he's doing these things that he's doing which which are presented just before that text, these miracles that he's doing, these attest or affirm or or declare basically that he is from God and that God is with him. Um but the second thing I think was interesting is how he goes on to say that that about them Although these are the spiritual leaders of the Jewish faith who say they have faith, and yet what does Jesus say about them? 
that they do not know him, right? That, they, that you, you have a claim to knowing me, but you don't even know me. If you knew the Father, you would know me. And if you believed me, you would, then you would have known the Father. So he, again, Jesus is showing the, two, the unity of Father and Son, that they are two, that the th- they're part of this trinity, the three in one. But also that, that there are many people who might make a claim to knowing God, but what? But they don't. Okay, so just keep that kind of on the back, a burner of your minds, when you consider uh, the attesting here that he said is needed. So this is John 5, and it was 36 to 47. Yes, he does. (laughs) Eventually, he really lays into him. Yes, which is what I think is interesting about how Peter lays into Simon at the when we get there. Okay, so Jesus was attested by signs. Now, the the, uh, next thing in uh, Acts chapter 2 about Jesus that we need to know in 23. Yes, he was. And how how did that happen? By a predetermined plan of God. Now, that is not said in that 1 Corinthians verse, but I think it's a significant point, additional point that needs to be brought up that Jesus did not end up on the cross because of evil men. Although evil men put him on the cross, it was a plan by God that this would be the the path for Jesus to go. Now, why is that so? What is so necessary about Jesus having to go to a cross? What else do we know? Bring in your whole counsel of God's word. Sin requires a sacrifice. That's right. There you go, blood. Without the shedding of blood, what? There is no remission of sin. And what's the purpose to the cross according to what else we we learn? Yeah. Go down to verse, oh, I didn't put the verse number. Jesus' resurrection put an end to the agony of death. Did you see that one in there? 21. I'm going to... 20, oh, it's in 24 also. Okay. Hold on. I'm going to write that on my chart because I forgot to type it in. Okay. Um, so Jesus' resurrection put an end to the agony of death. Now, what is that talking about? What is the agony of death speaking of? Okay. Separation from, from God, this eternal agony that would be. So Jesus' resurrection that we see in 24, it renders the devil powerless over death, right? Which is what men feared, have always feared, right? And it releases us from the fear of death. There are two verses that are really good in this. One is in Hebrews 2. Somebody open that, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. The other one is Romans 6, 23. I just want you to see those very quickly. Wow. So he, he's, he is clearly making sure that we understand that, that through the resurrection of Jesus, 
He has set us free from that bondage because of his resurrection. It goes back into a bigger teaching that you have to do on the, Jesus being the first fruits, which is what's given to us in the book of Acts. Starting out, we start out with the Feast of First Fruits has been accomplished, and we're approaching the day of Pentecost then, and having him being the first fruits the first to resurrect from the dead, then that opens for you and I that avenue that we also can resurrect from the dead because Jesus has the power to do that, right? So he's shown that to us and he then demonstrated by presenting himself alive, showing people, see, here I am, I'm alive. There were multitudes of witnesses, right? We see, the, we see the apostles being presented, talks about Peter seeing him, it talks about James seeing him, it talks about um, the 500 and then others, right? So we know that the record shows us that he presented himself alive. Why? Because this shows us through this evidential record then that Jesus did have power over life, that he was put to death, buried. How long was he buried? Three days. And when he resurrected, then he showed himself alive. So this is, first of all, Jesus was turned over then by a predetermined plan and foreknowledge. By the way, when you look at the idea of foreknowledge, at what time in history did God make this plan? Very good. Everybody knows that from before the foundation of the world, this was a plan that God had in place. Even before man was created, God knew that man would need a redeemer. And he put it in this four, uh, four plan, this, this predetermined plan that man then would have uh, a savior that they, that they needed. And he says, you nailed him to the cross is a part of that gospel. You nailed uh, him to a cross. And put him to death. And that's in 23. But the great news is God raised him. Right? And Jesus' resurrection... Put an end to the agony of death. The consequences of death, the fear of death, all those things. So that was, we, you just read was Hebrews, correct? Right. Somebody read Romans 6.23. Now, somebody do that from memory. <laughs> I, the whole room for yeah <laughs> but the gift of god is it's right <laughs> all right good job okay is the free gift of god now that's an important part too isn't it that this is a free gift because as we now know when we look in in acts chapter 8 with simon one of the things that he wanted to do was what he wanted to purchase the power that he, he thought he was, he was witnessing. He, and it's very interesting, too, is his misunderstanding of what he was witnessing. He obviously had no spiritual insight or spiritual understanding of, the, of what was truly going on before his eyes. What he saw was another magic trick, right? But what the reality was, it was a whole different thing, and so he was rebuked then. Um, the closing of Acts chapter 2 talks about God has made Jesus what? How, 
Yes, God made Jesus, has made Jesus Lord and Christ. Now, this one has made, I'm, hold on just a second, let me get this on here. Jesus, Lord and Christ. Now, again, word studies are always really helpful to get the fullest picture of this. So what does it mean to be Lord? And I think this one, it can be really, really hot topic again, because there's people who believe that you can have salvation without Jesus being Lord. Okay? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. How many of you guys have ever encountered that? Where? <laughs> well, I don't know if there's a name for it, but that is in essence what it is. They believe that you can simply make a profession, but then not, not live it. You can live any way you want. Now, what does Paul say about the one who's been saved from sin? What should, he, should he continue all the more in sin? May it never be, right? So Romans is one book that says to us, now wait a minute, if you have entered into relationship with Jesus, there needs to be a transformed life, correct? We looked at the word baptism early in our study, and we defined it, right? There were two kinds of baptism that can take place. One is what? Water. It's a dipping, right? But what is the other one? It's Holy Spirit, and it's pickling. Thank you, Susan. Good job. Did you notice my pickle on your chart this morning? So there's a, there's a salvation or a belief that comes that actually saves. There's a belief that actually saves, but sometimes there's a belief that, that results in what happened with Simon, right? Where he's being rebuked then by the apostle. Okay, so let's go on and look then at Samaria. The first thing we want to do is do a real quick review of where we are kind of in this timeline of events that we've seen of the birthing of the church. Some of you guys are getting, you're getting so excited, Brenda. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because my grandchildren, this is not a pickle, this is Larry. And he's oh, I know. <laughs> I'm a cucumber. No, no, no. Poor Larry, he needs Jesus then, doesn't he? <laughs> you need to tell them that. Poor Larry's not saved? No. <laughs> That's good. Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 8. Tell me what... What you saw, what was your general observations when you did your day one homework? What kind of things did you see in the chapter 8 observations? Lots of geography. Now, what was significant about the geography? Yes, we have now moved outside of Jerusalem. Kay asked you on your observation, on your um, at-a-glance chart, to begin to make your column. Remember, I've told you already ahead of time about this, that, that these segment divisions kind of develop as you're moving along. You're not going to know segment divisions up front. They're going to present themselves to you as you move along. So she is now giving you a clue by saying, go to your chart on your segment division, mark off the division from where you see them only being uh, witnessed to in Jerusalem, and then now where are we in chapter 8? We've moved from Jerusalem to Samaria. Go back to uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, and what did Jesus say about the witness that would take place? And then Judea and Samaria, and then where? To the uttermost parts of the earth, correct? So we know there's a, a kind of a three or almost fourfold process here, and we're beginning to see that, are we not? Now in chapter 8, we've moved from Jerusalem, now we're into Samaria. So, so having marked that on your observation, uh, or your at-a-glance chart rather, that should be helpful to you to begin to keep track on that particular segment division. It's just one 
one of many. Um, another one might be who's preaching as we go along. That's another good segment um, possibility. Um, Mm-hmm. It's Acts 8-1. That it breaks it. You're right. You know, actually, that's, that should be a good clue. It's just flip, the, flip your numbers around, and you've got your, your segment division marked in your mind. That's, I love those little tricks. They're very helpful to me. No, but, no, I know. But it's a great trick. But, you know, it still feels divinely inspired, doesn't it? <laughs> because God knows how we need help. <laughs> All right. All right, so when you looked at Acts, what were some key words you marked here? We know Simon. We've already talked about him. Persecution. Persecution. That one's huge because that's, although it's only mentioned once in the chapter, it, it explains everything else that follows, right? That's ravaging. <clears throat> what Saul did was ravaging persecution. Right. And it actually is going to help develop two good points as we move on. First and foremost, in this book, it explains to us why we've moved from Jerusalem into Samaria. Later, it's also going to be associated with insight about Paul himself, right? We know that as we move forward, so just keep that in mind. Okay, so a great persecution is one key thing that should be marked. What else? Again, baptized. They were being baptized, men and women alike. Is there a difference between this baptism and the baptism we saw in chapter uh, 2? Okay. Dip. Okay. Now, it, what's interesting is that word, it can trick you because sometimes it looks like it's just saying water, but we, the context is going to explain it to you. How do you know for sure in verse uh, 12 that it is just water? There you go, because it actually tells you. Isn't that nice when it does that? This is one of the few times in Scripture where it actually explains they didn't actually receive the Holy Spirit here, they just got wet, right? All right. Mm-hmm. Synonyms. Very good. So there's another word to have marked. Gospel, good news, and the word. Okay? It's very hard. I've kind of marked uh, the preaching of the word, too. Anytime the word preaching is marked, I was, I was marking it. I ended up kind of joining those symbols together because if you're preaching, you're preaching what? The good news. <laughs> so they're almost still one and the same. So you can kind of just merge those two together if you wanted to. Okay? What else? Believe, another, another huge word in this, again, it becomes the subject of our controversy throughout the rest of our understanding of this man, Simon, okay? Pardon? Gospel. The gospel, which we just talked about. The good news, the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same word, actually. It's, it's yes. Verb, That's what we, you missed our conversation, Craig. You were thinking. You were reading. <laughs> we all just discussed that. <laughs> okay, it's okay. Good job, Craig. Thank you. <laughs> Just in case we missed it, he's reiterating. Okay. Yes, it is. Um, give me that reference because I didn't mark it. Oh yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So. This one can open up also a, a subject which I did not study and I did not go there. But what, how might this idea of the kingdom be interpreted? What might it be speaking of? What kingdom? 
be speaking of the millennial kingdom, the everlasting, the one that's yet to come. If he's giving them good news, it could be also about that, correct? Potentially. But in the context of what we're reading, what do you think maybe it also is speaking of? On this earth, through, through how? Through our hearts, right? So in this case, this good news resulted in them doing what? Being, believing and being baptized and then later receiving that Holy Spirit, correct? So in this case, it seems to me like, at least in the immediate context, this kingdom is closer affiliated to the idea of salvation and the, church, the birthing of the church, that kingdom, correct? And I know there's some controversy about that subject as well. Is there a kingdom here on earth or is there only a millennial kingdom? Or is there not going to ever be a millennial kingdom? Is there only the kingdom that is established through the church when it's birth? So that's a controversy. I know you, some of you are going, really? But yes, <laughs> that's another controversy. Okay, so marking of kingdom might have been a good subject to go off on a little bit of a rabbit trail on. That would be good. All right. Anything else? And Holy Spirit. We should definitely have marked the Holy Spirit. And pray, prayer. I love that. Anytime you talk about the, the prayer and the subject of prayer that comes up, I think it's very insightful to pay attention to how much reliance there is on this early church to prayer. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very good. Right, right. Which, if you go back to chapter 238, which is that other controversial statement in there, and this is where I was talking earlier also to uh, uh, several people anyway, but in 238 where we, where we have that statement that says that you must be baptized and then you will receive the Holy Spirit, and um, we went into the Greek on that where it looks like there's a huge controversy about how that has been translated into English and all this other stuff. But I almost think now that if we had done a study on that subject of baptism up front so that we understood the historical place of water baptism and what its purpose was and the people's understanding of its purpose as a Jewish people. This is the Jews' understanding of baptism, what they used it for and what its significance was, then we might also be able to say, okay, maybe he's saying they need to get baptized by water and and then they will receive the Holy Spirit. But he's not saying it from the perspective of that because you get wet, you will receive the Holy Spirit, that it's, it's a precursor to or a requirement of it. Um, and I did go to... Um, speak with Pastor Rob about that a little bit also yesterday, and he was in agreement that that is not what that verse is actually saying, that they have to more fully develop it through the full counsel of God's word in order to get a proper interpretation of that. But I know that there are teachings in some churches that say that you have to get physically baptized or you don't receive the Holy Spirit. It's why so many denominations baptize even infants. I, I was baptized as an infant in a, in a Lutheran church because that church teached that that was required. Um, uh, interestingly, that, 
uh, for us in the church, what we see in the New Testament, that baptism is is the external sign of something that has taken place internally. You're right. This is where it can get so hard because it's like there's not a... There's not a direct answer, yes and no, to things. You have to take the whole counsel of God's word. And you have to know subjects. You do need to understand the full subject of covenant. What is a covenant and how do you enter into it? What is the new covenant in Jesus Christ, right? So if you don't have that understanding that the covenant is your salvation, and in order to be saved, you have to enter into this kind of a covenant through this process that God has set in place called covenant making, if you don't have that full picture, then it would be easy for you to then jump into the New Testament and say, all you have to do is, quote, make a verbal confession and then it's a done deal. But that's not what, if you simplistically line the word up in that way, you miss the whole rest of the counsel of God's word concerning what relationship with God is and how you enter into that covenant. Lisa. Lisa. There you go. Heart. Okay, very good. So do you see that in Acts 8 also? Yes or Where where is the Give me those references. I like that. And 37. So there's that word heart. I like that. I didn't know that. I'm going to mark that on there. So don't erase that before I get to put it down. I'm going to have to go back in and mark it. Heart conditions, exactly. Very good. Oh, I like that. I wish I had done that because that might have helped even develop Simon a little bit better, huh? All right. Very good. All right. So now let's move on. What did you do on your research for the Samaritans? Who are the Samaritans? Basically, they are to the north of Jerusalem, and they are half-breeds. Now, how did this half-breed come about? What had happened? Yes, when the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdoms, right, um, and much of the population was exported, correct? But then what happened later? Yeah, yeah. But before the priests of God were brought in, who was brought in to, to be upon the land to the Assyrian people? And there was a list of like three or four different kinds of people who were basically Gentiles. I'm just going to call them Gentiles. So Gentiles were brought in then to live upon the land. One of the things that happened was when they got on the land, there was a lot of lions. People were getting killed. And they made the assumption or the the conclusion that it was because they weren't worshiping the God of that land properly. So then the, the, the king then of Assyria sent in priests that had been taken into exile, sent them back to teach the people about Yahweh. Right and about reli- the the religion of Judaism at that in history. So when they came in, they began. So then, consequently, what resulted? You have Gentiles and Jews. They begin to intermarry, right? So you end up with people who are, who are half breeds. I kind of hate that word. It sounds so nasty, but anyway, that's that is the reality. Um, and then. Uh, what about religion-wise? If their breed has been ma- mixed through Gentiles and Jews marrying, which, by the way, was a big no-no. It was corrupting. They, they just incorporated their heathen things with the, the Jewish things, so the, their religion was just all of everything. It was, it was a mixture of things, right. <laughs> it was what? Kabbalah. A little bit of Kabbalah. You're right. Actually, James, that's really good. Yes. 
Yes. Oh, absolutely. They were corrupt all by themselves, which is really scary to send in one of those Jewish priests to help the Gentiles figure it out when they had already been exiled because they weren't doing it right. Okay. So consequently, the result is seen when you see the encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well, which is where Kay took us, right? So what, what did we see through that encounter? What did she know about Judaism that was, that was truth and that then Jesus makes an affirmation to that there was a messiah i know that messiah is coming the one who is called the christ right and that when he comes he will tell us all things well what had jesus just told her that was all things about her personally he had told her about her own life right so she knew that there was a she says and i know that you are a prophet from god as well right in the book of acts we see that moses had pronounced that a prophet like me will come correct? So she has some pieces. She knows about a prophet that's going to come. She knows that it's the Messiah. And when she sees him, she actually recognizes him, which is quite amazing, considering she also has mixed in there worship on what? Two different hills, right? And we know that there's only one place that God sanctioned for them to worship. That was at, at, at Jerusalem, right? On, at Mount Sinai. Or not Sinai, at Mount Moriah. Sorry, <laughs> wrong mountain. Um, but for them, it was Gezerim, the mount, mountain at Gezerim. And that's where they were worshiping. And they had put up altars and were worshiping there, correct? So there was this mixture. Half, half interestingly was true, but a lot of it was also polluted. But yet she had retained enough insight that when she spoke with Jesus, she recognized him. What does that tell you about her heart? She was actually searching for the real thing, right? It's really interesting because there's a difference between people who play religion, right? And they may have information and information comes in. But look at, the, look at the religious leaders that we've looked at in Acts so far. When miracles were done right before them with the lame man. And the lame man stood right there in their presence. And they couldn't even refute it because there he stood, right? And yet what did they do? They resist, right? They rejected that truth. And yet here's this woman who's out kind of in the middle of nowhere, has very little true training about what the Messiah would be and who he, and how to worship and so forth. And yet she had enough insight that when Jesus came to her, she both recognized it and received, and received it. What a difference in the two kinds of hearts there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I think there's a song called that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, exactly. Okay, so that gives us this, this kind of the setting for Samaria because these Samaritans, for one thing, Jesus had already made a visit there. So they had had a little bit. We know that, that a, um, a, Jesus had in some ways himself prepared the soil, right? Because he had come, he had introduced this, this new uh, truth that the Messiah was now here and it was he. These people in Samaria had heard of this. The Samaritan woman had taken it to the city and these people had, were at least aware of it to some degree. How many of them, I don't know. How many of from, from this story that we're getting here, I don't know. It doesn't say. But at least backdrop to this is we know that Jesus has been there. There had been a revival of some sort at some point in min- the ministry of Jesus. Now, 
interestingly, what had happened with it since then, had a lot of it dwindled, had a lot of it fallen away because it was seeds planted on rocky soil, potentially. Hadn't been, yeah, not that many years, a few years, but, well, I don't know. He's, he was three and a half years in ministry, right? And it was at the beginning of his ministry that he went to the woman at the well. And so, you know, now we're talking right in the birth. So it's been maybe three years is my guess, or maybe a little less, but yeah, I know. So right in there. All right. So now let's do a quick review. I want you to also think for contextual purpose of where we're heading into uh, observing what's going on in chapter 8, one of the things I've talked to you about is that observing this from the perspective of the birthing of something new called the church and what God is teaching us about a healthy church, right? What does a healthy church look like? And not only does what does a healthy church look like, but just what does a church look like? Because with, with churches comes also problems, right? So what did we learn back in chapter 4? What did we see in chapter 4? Just flip open your observation worksheet. What was going on in that church at that time? In, is that in chapter 4? Okay, go to 4. Uh-huh. I know. I want you to hit, hit 4 first. We'll do it systematically here. In 4, we see the Jewish rulers are doing what? Opposing it, even though what has happened? Even though the lame man had been, had been healed and it was right before their eyes. So what we see then is, on the one hand, some people were believing like the lame man, but on the other hand, the Jewish rulers were opposing. So one of the things for us to know is that there, are going to, there is going to be opposition to the gospel message. And sometimes it doesn't matter how well you present it. It doesn't matter how much evidence you place right in front of their faces. They will still defiantly dig in their heels and shut down their hearts and just stand there, uh, you know, in a, in a complete um, rejection of that obvious message. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with certain people in my life who won't believe on Jesus no matter what I show them as evidence or no matter what I say. What about this? What about this? What about this? Right? They won't hear it. So here we see that presented to us in Acts chapter 4 for the, for the first time in the birthing of this new church. How far into the birthing of the church are we? Itsy bitsy. We're talking the beginning of the church. And right away the church is getting opposition to the gospel message and to, to blatant truth laid right between the faces of some people. So that's kind of a good thing to know about, I think, at least have a reality check in our own hearts about the fact that it doesn't matter how well you present it sometimes, it won't always be received, okay? So that's one point. Chapter 5, then, we see another issue come up. What was that? Ananias and Sapphira. Now, we didn't talk about so much in detail anyway about, you know, are they saved? Are they not saved? Whatever. I, you know, I personally tend to say I think they were saved. But what I see here is what going on at this moment. Church discipline. This is discipline of God upon two who are affiliated with the church, right? And they are mimicking some of the things that people around them are doing. But then what did they do that was the serious offense? They lied about it. And I love what James said earlier. He says, There's a, this is one of the best uh, instances where you can see the unity of the Holy Spirit being God himself. Because in there, he says they lied to, ha, ha, say it for me, James. 
Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? That's verse 3. And then on verse 4, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. There you go. Isn't that kind of cool? So to keep that one in mind for those of you who are witnessing, and if you ever want to unite the two, that the Holy Spirit is God, there is your perfect two, two verses, one boom, boom, right there in chapter 5 of Acts. So we see a serious sin. We see that they had tested the Spirit of the Lord. What, what does that mean to test the Spirit of the Lord? Lord, are you watching? Do you know what's going on? Do you see this? It's really a challenge to his authority, right? And to whether he is sovereignly watching over and caring for his church. One of the, sub, one of the subliminal messages in here, it's not so subliminal, it's pretty obvious, but that is that God is the sovereign over the church. That is, is his role in church. He is the one who watches over it. He is the ruler. He is the orchestrator. He, he watches it, right? So in his sovereign hand, he's doing it. Here, they were testing that. God, do you see me doing this? And what are you going to do about it? Like that little child sticking their toe over the line, right? So what we saw here was the testing of the spirit that led God to then do what? Put them to death. So this would be that proverbial lesson that we talk about so often about the sinning unto death, okay? And this is, can be God's righteous judgment against his children. And this is very clearly a, a scriptural teaching in the word of God about potentially we can sin unto death. Did you know that? Does that put the fear of God in you just a little bit? That you can't test God, stick your toe over the line, and defiantly say, so what are you going to do about it, God, and not potentially consider, what if I sin unto death in this? Now, what is God? Gracious. What is God? Patient. What is God? He is long-suffering and forgiving. He's all these things. But is there a point where he's going to draw a line in the sand, possibly? Yes, we see that presented to us in the book of Acts, that there is that potential that God can take you out. For one thing, in this case, we had something brand new coming up in the, in the wake, the church. And God is establishing what his expectations are for his believers and how his church is to function. And one of the things that he is not tolerating is what? Lying. Lying is one of those foundational things that God does not permit in his children. He will rebuke it. He will discipline it. And he loves to work through discipline first. But I like Corinthians the best. It says, examine yourself first. Because he says, those of you who examine your, don't examine yourselves, you're, you're taking in an irreverent way the Lord's Supper. But that some are therefore sick, some are weak, and some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep means dead. They died. So God can potentially take life. So we see that demonstrated to us here in this Ananias and Sapphira lesson. So that's another point, critical point of understanding the concept of church. And that's what we're learning about here. Chapter 6, we saw something else. What did we see there? Pardon? Yes, the seven... That were called to serve. But why were they called to serve? What was the problem in the church? They were, there was a complaint about unfair treatment, right? So what we see very early on is, are there sometimes complaints in churches? Ha, 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 ha. We all laugh so well. Because boy, is that ever true. I got to be careful for that corner. <laughs> Yesterday, Wes almost took himself out on that one. Um, so... So we see there were complaints and from the church and that there was this unfair treatment. Then we move into chapter 7 and we see 
What happened here? Another thing that can happen within the church. What happened to Stephen? He was martyred, but what, and, and what was the charge against him? Was it just or unjust? An unjust was a false uh, um, accusations that were brought up against him. And then, of course, he does what for us? He demonstrates standing fast. He demonstrates a beautiful proclamation. But in, in this proclamation, it wasn't just a history lesson, was it? What was it? It was an indictment against the Jewish history of their rejection and rebellion against the message from God. He actually says, you, have re- you rebel and have resisted the Holy Spirit, right? And so he, uh, Stephen then goes to his death for it. So what does that teach us? Potentially, you may go to death. Now, we kind of skirt over that in history a lot, in current history. But I would say in most recent history, are we beginning to really see that there may be a call in our lives, in our generation, where we are called to, to either die for our faith, right, or, 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 or advent from it even, to turn around and reject it or to desert the faith, correct? Potentially, you can, you, that is your choice. Desert it, because that's what they say. Deny Christ, and then we won't kill you. Ha, ha. I bet they would still kill him. But they say, if you deny him, we won't kill you. But if you, if you won't deny them, we are going to behead you. And they are doing these beheadings now. So this actually, sorry? That's right. Absolutely. Then you can take it to the next. Yeah, we like that level better. It's a little, little less painful. However, it can still be really terrible because there are school teachers who've lost jobs. There have been politicians who lose elections. There have been um, pe- people who own cake shops that get shut down. I mean, we see this all over. And I actually ran off a list of seven recent court cases of persecution against individuals in our nation just recently for their faith, specifically for standing up as Christians and saying, this is what I believe, this is where I stand, and no, I won't do these things. It's my choice, it's my business, and now they're being sued. Some of them have been sued, and the, and the oppressors have won. And would you say we see oppression here winning? Yeah, yeah. so that's a really good point. And Right, that's another good one. You know, I've heard about that particular subject since almost its inception. When my children were little, which was like years ago, um, but homeschooling was a brand new phenomenon back then. And, of course, it, it was a rejuvenated phenomenon because in ancient history of our nation, everybody was homeschooled, right? But, but now, but homeschooling, I can remember how it was, will the government recognize what you're teaching? Will your kids be able to get any kind of a degree? Will they, you know, and it was a process, and some people really had to forge that path. But now they're trying to take it all away. Yeah. Okay, so that kind of gives us the progression. So now what we see here, let me just give you the rundown. We see rejection and opposition of the gospel. We see serious sin then that God puts people to death for. We see complaints from within the church of unfair treatment that had to be resolved, and they did it through setting up of leadership, right? uh, We see unjust persecution that resulted in the loss of life. So now we're entering into chapter uh, 8, and now what I want to do is not only observe what we see going on in here from the simple, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, the, the... 
um, just following the steps of doing observation, right? Just making our list, looking for contrasts and comparisons and so forth, doing word studies. As you're doing that, then I want you to also go to that next level in your mind and say, now, what am I seeing about church? What are some truths I need to know about my church and about the potential of people within the church and 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 things that might come against us as church members. So just kind of be thinking about that. Let's start, though, simply by looking at a man named Simon, because he is one of the key people in here, right? So this one is, uh, the title of this uh, section is Samaria Receives the, the Gospel. All right, we're going to look at Simon first. Tell me, what does the text itself tell us about Simon? Okay, yes, he practiced uh, magic, right? We see that in verse 9. All right, what else? Had many followers. Mm hmm. I think that's interesting. He claimed to be someone great. What is that verse? Nine also. Okay. And he had many followers. Now, that's like a conclusion that you're going to see out of verse, kind of verse 10, I think. But what else does it say in verse 10? What was he doing that was causing so many followers? Yeah, because he was doing what? He was astonishing them, right? Mm-hmm. He was astonishing the people with his magic, with uh, magic arts. And so they were giving attention to him, right? And consequently, they were calling him what? Interesting. The great power of God. <laughs> it, it's really kind of interesting because I know how, how many magicians you know that are always got the title to the great. You know, the amazing and the magnificent and so and so the great, right? So here's an, here's one of our first greats. He's a magician that's the great, and he's the great power of God. So what does it tell you about what he believed about his magic arts, or not necessarily that he believed it, but that he was at least conveying to the people? Where did his magic come from, did he say? He was saying, he was laying a claim to the fact that his magic came from God because he allowed them to call him the great power of God. So that's a false identity that he has put forth, right? So we, I mean, we could actually do an analytical uh, conversation here very quickly about his character. What do you see in him at this point? Pride, arrogance, man. He loved being, he loved being the center of attention, okay? He really seems to be a shyster. That's a good one. I like that. Because he's really tricking people because it, by the word studies in that magic arts is talking about something that is like a trick. It's not true power. It's tricks. Yeah, sleight of hand, right? All right. And what happened when 
Um, oh, one person we didn't talk about was Philip. But when Philip comes, Philip begins to preach the gospel. And many of these people who had been following him began to do what? Follow Philip and believe Philip, right? And then they were baptized, right? What does that do to this man's audience, his followers? So what do you think might be going on in his heart? Could, could be some jealousy going on. Now, it doesn't say that. But, but well, later. We're gonna, later, we do get better. Now, that was, you're just jumping ahead, but that's good, Celeste. Because when you go on, Peter then gives us a better insight about what is actually going on in this man's heart about why he followed and came into this supposed belief, right? All right, so it says, but they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So it shows you where they're putting their faith. Were they putting their faith on the magical things that he was doing, quote, magical, as in this case, it would be signs and wonders and miracles, which God was giving to attest to him. No, they weren't. They weren't looking at his miracles. They did see them occurring. But when it gives an explanation about what they believed on, they weren't believing on the, the wonders and the miracles. What were they believing on? The name of Jesus and the preaching of the good news of the kingdom. This is a huge contrast. If you haven't marked it as a contrast, you might want to. That what they believed on, what the people were believing on, was the good news and the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what did we learn back about the lame, when we saw the lame man healed? What healed the lame man? Faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And by that name alone is man saved, right? And so here we see the people are doing that. Now, what, when you look at Simon then, he himself believed and was baptized. And he continued on with Philip. And what was he doing? Yeah, well, he was observing what? Who, what, was, what was Simon observing? Yeah. So what I think is interesting is the contrast between what the people focused on and what Simon focused on. Do you see the contrast there? The people's focus was on the good news and upon the name of Jesus Christ. Simon was going, ooh, look at the, the amazing wonders and miracles and signs that he's doing. And certainly that would entice a man who's by profession a magician, correct? So, you know, we might could excuse it at that point and just say, well, he's just, just his temperament and his personality and it's his air of interest. And so that doesn't really mean anything, right? But as you move on then, we see the next event in verse 14. And this is a whole other subject. If we have time, we'll try to hit it. But the apostles coming down and they're laying on of hands, right? In order that the people would do what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Because although they had been baptized, right? They had not what? Received the Holy Spirit. Now, now would somebody care to expound on maybe the significance of what's going on right here? Why had they not received? If the Holy Spirit had already fallen in Jerusalem, why was it not falling on the Samaritans? Very good. Okay, so hang on to those thoughts because that is where what we need to build up a little bit more knowledge of through some additional cross-references to get the whole story about what was the necessity for the apostles having to come and lay on hands. Do you and I receive the Holy Spirit by someone coming and laying our hands on us? 
one of the rebukes that Peter gives to him is he said to him when he says, you thought you could do what? You could buy this, right? Can you buy the power to impart the Holy Spirit? Can you buy your way into heaven? No. Can you pay enough money to a church that they would write your names in the rolls of heaven and there you are? No. The, that, so really, this is a very profound statement here that Peter is making, that, that it is not by tithing to your church. It's not by, uh, you can't p- pay for this. Because one of the things that, um, the, when, you, when we established with the layman, when Peter approached the layman and the layman said, you know, he was begging for alms, and what did Peter say to him? No, but what I do give to you, what? I freely give. It is a free gift of God. That's a great contrast. It's a free gift of God. You cannot purchase it. So although it's not an immediate text contrast, it is a contrast statement here that you could contrast with, with where Peter says to uh, the lame man that it's a free gift. You can't buy it right? So that was a a real pointed part of the gospel message here that you might want to just kind of pay attention to here. Okay, so it says Simon himself believed. Okay, so let's look at this. Now, this is where the rub can be, this idea of belief. There, there is a school of thought, and I'm going to tell you there is a controversy on this. Did you guys know that? Or am I just introducing something? I don't need to. <laughs> okay. About b- the word believed. And that if Simon said he believed, then that's it. He believed. The word says believed, so he believed, right? Um, believed as in unto salvation. But, the, but the, um, again, the answer to whether or not he actually believed as in salvation is going to be found in, the number one, his response versus the people's re- response. So let's look at that. Let's look at... Um, his, his belief. Because we're going to contrast that with other people, the peoples. What is the result of his belief? Well, what did we see? Number one, he was observing signs and miracles, right? And following Uh So he was following after Philip in verse 13 because of these observing of the signs and the miracles which were catching his attention, correct? And he's hanging out with the important people also because if you've been used to being called the great... Uh, the great power of God and being considered important, you know that his arrogance and his vanity is in there a bit. And so he, he's seeing all the people now, masses have moved. So what is he going to do? He's going to fix himself to someone else who's in a position of authority, potentially, just in order to be elevated, possibly. I mean, we're, we're subjecting all that in here. I realize that. But by looking at his character, we can probably come to that with pretty sound um, observation. It's not like we're, we're, God says that we're to observe the tree and know a tree by its fruit, right? So this is one of the things we're doing. He also says in 1 John that you, t- you, are, you need to discern the spirits, right? To know whether they are of God or not. 
And so this is one of those things that we're trying to do, we're, and we're trying to do it simply by the words and the things which are presented to us through this storyline. So the first thing we see that in his belief, his immediate response is not like the people, where the people were, were hearing the gospel message and they were putting their faith in the name of Jesus Christ and being baptized. In his case, yeah, he said he believed and was baptized too, but then the first thing you see about his response is he's following um, Philip, observing the signs and wonders that he's doing. So you see where his focus of attention is, right? That's his, his focus. And in the next verse, in verse 13, it says about his observing that, what was he? Constantly amazed. Now, I looked that up. Did anybody? Okay, constantly amazed means to be beside oneself, astonished. It's the word ecstasy or bewitched. I thought that was very interesting. So it's like captivated, totally enthralled, like, wow. So where's his focus? Is it upon the kingdom of God that he's been told about? Is it upon the name of Jesus and the wonderful works of of the fact that he was put to death but raised up again? Wow, raised up again. The, The power of death is now done. Is that where he was at? No, he was looking at the wonders and the signs that Philip was doing. Yeah, that's right. So he was constantly amazed at signs. Okay, so verse 13 says he was constantly amazed, and you should do a word study on that, constantly amazed, to get the fullness of that. And then, because he was constantly amazed in verse 19, then what does he do? He saw them lay their hands, and then what? He says, ha, can I buy that power too? I want that authority. So where is his focus? He wants the power. That's right. He offers money. To have their power or their authority is the word that's used in there. And I like that word authority, by the way, because it definitely takes us into understanding what the apostles were doing there was an act of authority. Okay? All right. So then the result then of his belief is uh, when he he is rebuked, we see that there's quite a bit of information on that, right? What did he, how did he respond to that rebuke? He didn't repent. He didn't. If somebody challenged you about your faith and, sa- and said to you things like we see in here, let's, let's just look at some of this. Um, um, may your silver perish with you. Your heart is not right before God. Repent of this this wickedness. You are in the galls of bitterness. You are in the bondage of sin. And by the way, you need to pray to the Lord, if possible, that you might be forgiven the intention of your heart, right? Okay, so somebody has said this to you. What are you going to do? What are you going to start speaking out of your mouth? Probably. And your defense would be to do what? Stand upon what? Right? You would go right here. I would. Would you? Would you go to, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know I am, I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved because Jesus paid the penalty. I am forgiven. 
right? I am forgiven. I don't have to pray that perhaps I will be. I am forgiven. Now, I'm not talking... Now, this is from the perspective of if you're looking at him from, from this viewpoint that's been presented to us, that, he, that, that this man's heart is, is, is really tied up in the superficial external things that are going on that he's witnessing. So he's observing these signs of the minute, and then he offers them money, and then when he's rebuked, You pray. You pray for me. And I think that's interesting. What did David, King David, do when he was rebuked by the prophet? Immediately, he humbled himself. This is one of the reasons God says, he's a man after my own heart. Huh? He wrote Psalm 51. So when he is, when, whoops, I didn't do that right. When he is rebuked, he says, you pray. He doesn't say, oh, please pray with me, or, oh my gosh, that's true, I shouldn't be doing that. I mean, you see nothing in the storyline that shows repentance. There's no repentance that's conveyed to us. Okay, so we do not see, we do not see repentance, or a repentant heart, or even a concern that others would view him as not being saved. I would say that most believers, true believers, will be greatly offended if you say to them you're not saved. I can tell you this from my own personal experience from in my early faith walk where I was told, I don't think you're saved. And I was like, oh, for three days I was literally sick. And I was, I mean, I buried myself in the word of God and I was searching the scriptures to see what might I be missing now it was a great it was a great exercise for of in the lord's for me for my life for me to understand that my faith has nothing to do with what people view my external life being life it, it is all about this what have i put my faith and trust in now that doesn't mean my life should not be demonstrating good things and she was this person that was accusing me of this was she was frustrated because i was not uh following her enough. She wanted me to do the things that she was doing and have a passion for things that she was having passion for, and I didn't. And because of that, she felt I was being rebellious, and therefore I probably wasn't saved. (laughs) It was just a weird conversation, but it was one of those, I was young, she was young. It's one of those processes we all hopefully have gone to through some measure or another. But the bottom line is, I'm saying to you, I know from my personal experience, when somebody challenges you about your faith, whether you're saved or you're not, your first response is not like this. It's not like, eh, you know, you pray for me. True. But he didn't say that. He didn't. That's my point. Yeah. It shows it within the, the, unf- the, within the unfolding of the words that are given to us in the text, we see no hint of repentance or of concern or of denial of what was said about him or anything. Now, my point is this. In the text, I think often the scripture expounds better to tell us the the real case or the real result of a person's life. Do you remember when we did uh, a study on Judas Iscariot and it talked about him repenting, right? But what we know is was it a repentance as unto salvation? Or was it a repentance that brought him back into good, good, the good fold of God? What is Acts chapter uh, 1 open with? 
that he had killed himself, that his his uh, intestines had been spilled out, and therefore the and the prophet said he had to be replaced, right among the apostles. So he had been rejected, right? Jesus himself in that immediate uh, um, text talks about him being in the snare of Satan, right? So by fully developing all the the things that are said about Judas, we can come to a conclusion to see this man, he had followed Jesus, yes, but had he followed for for the right reasons? And was he a part of God's um, disciples, true disciples? Yes. Jesus called him the son of perdition. There you go. There you go. Perfect. Excellent. Jesus, through his words, although he doesn't say you're not a believer, he says you are the son of perdition. Okay. So, okay. Very good. He says it later. And that's where you have to use the whole counsel of God's word and bring all the pieces together. And then you can draw a conclusion. He did not know the Lord. He was not following Jesus for the right reasons. And I would suggest that potentially maybe that Simon not following for the right reasons. Now, if you want to believe that he believed and that he really was saved, then the rest of everything that we're seeing here is a rebuke to a baby Christian. And they're saying to them, you still need to do what? you still need to repent. So you can hold that, that opinion if you choose to. But what I would like to do is develop these words of, of um, um, what, rebuke that Peter gives to him to help us further develop our understanding of what's being said to him by, by uh, Peter. Okay, so Peter, who, by the way, I, I don't know, if, do I have time? I got to take you to this thing because it kind of ties in with the idea of the authority of the apostles. Because I want you to understand who they were fundamentally to the body of Christ as it's being birthed. Okay, so let me take you to two, two verses. One is in 16 and one is in 18. Oh, let me find my Bible, Matthew Go back to Matthew. This is when Jesus is still with his apostles, right? One, it's in Matthew, Matthew 16, and the other is Matthew 18. So in Matthew 16, Peter, same Peter that we're looking at here, right? He's saying, starting in verse, um, let's start in 13. I'll just very quickly read this for you. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, yeah, this is Matthew 16, I'm in verse 14 now. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Okay, so there's the first inference that that these apostles, and he's only speaking to Peter here at the moment, but later we're going to see it's to all the apostles, that they are going to have a specific assigned role in the birthing of the church that's going to be an authority given to them specifically, 
for the purpose of getting this church started. And he says, I will, upon this rock, I will build my church. By the way, later it gets transferred down to all of us. We all have this same authority and the same responsibility, but it began with the apostles, right? And he says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you, Simon, the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you shall bind on earth, it shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth, it will be loosed in heaven. Now, what this is in translation saying, and if you did a research on this, it's giving him authority to either affirm or deny what is true spiritually. What is already is established in the heavens, not by his authority, but by the heavenly authorities of God and his gospel. Peter, because God gave him revelation of a truth that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that was a truth. He said, my father has revealed that to you. I'm, my father is going to give you that same kind of revelation and authority as you birth the church, okay? And so you are going to both establish what is true or what is not true. So what would you say might apply concerning this kind of insight to what we're seeing in Acts chapter 8 when the apostles had to come and lay on hands? Okay, potentially, and... Right. And now we're seeing the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit because of his preaching, and he's attesting that the Samaritans are part of God. Exactly. And then we'll see in chapter 10 that Cornelius, the, the rest of the world. Right. And who goes to Cornelius and affirms it? Peter. And later you're going to see Peter give a defense for that. All three times it's Peter, exactly. So just, he jumped ahead, way ahead. That's a precursor to future teachings, but it's a good one and it's true. Peter has been given this spiritual authority based on the fact that God has given him insight to a spiritual truth, which is beyond the supernatural. And I think of that passage in 1 Corinthians 2, I think it is, where it says that things are spiritually appraised, right? That the people who are in the flesh... They are not able to understand, right? Because why? They don't have the spirit within them. But people of the spirit within them, they're able to appraise all things, and they have spiritual wisdom and insight because of the spirit that's given to them. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Somebody find that verse for me. I think it's in, I think I have it on my chart too somewhere. Hold on. Um, I'm not sure where I put it though. I know I have it in here, but I'm not sure what, at what point I have it. I, I'm jumping all over as I'm teaching. It's always hard when I do that. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. Somebody look at that. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Isn't that awesome? So here what I am seeing is why did the apostles have to come down to lay on hands? They had the ability to 
they, number one, have been given that specific authority. This is the birthing of something new. It will be passed on to all of us through the generations in the future. But to establish it, God established it through who? Those 12, right? Back in Matthew, and also in Luke, uh, but in Matthew uh, 28, 19, and 20, he says of them, Go ye therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? And so he has commissioned them to go out and do this specific thing. When, when Jesus was here with them, he was sending them out two by two, training them for this future work that they were going to be doing. We see in Revelation chapter 20, 21 or 20, it's 21, I think it is, where the apostles' names are on those foundation stones, right? So we know that they are the ones to establish it. We talked about this also when we saw chapter 1, Matthias being chosen. Why is Matthias one of the 12 that are on the, that foundation stone? I believe it's because by the process that is wholly ordained by God, which was the casting of lots, through prayer and again by that Holy Spirit inspiration of truth, they remembered scripture. The scripture said that Judas needed to be replaced. They, so therefore they prayed. They did all the processes of weeding out who was acceptable and who wasn't to be this eyewitness. And then they, they casted the lots and they prayed and they chose Matthias. So all of this kind of information, all pulling this all in together, are you starting to get the idea of why the apostles would have to come to Samaria and make this proclamation that established what was true or what was not true? And what's interesting is we're seeing both happen in one place. On the one hand, they're saying it's true, and they're, they're laying hands on the people, and the people are being what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, then there's a response. Peter gives a response to uh, Simon. And what does he say of Simon? Repent. Your heart is not right with God. Interesting. Yeah, that's true. That's also true. Um, let's go to 18 also. And let's look at it here. Let's see. Matthew 18, 18. Let's flip over. I just want to show you a little bit more on this. Again, following the 16 one, Jesus says again in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, you, you the church, but in this case, you the apostles, specifically at the beginning, you shall bind on earth, it shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth, it shall be loosed in heaven. Okay? Uh, um, Future perfect words. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I'm not going to go there. Um, all right, now then go down to third, go back to, no, I guess that was it, Matthew. That was the one I wanted you to see. Was again, he talked about binding and loosing. And if you go into a Hebrew study on what it means to bind or to loose, it's a legal term. And he's giving them legal authority. So in, in this case, what it is showing us is that there is a commission specifically of these 12, they're being given a specific authority to establish something called the church. And that through them, then God will establish all these things that we're learning about. What does a healthy church look like? What does it consist of? Today, we're looking at the message. Again, is Jesus himself? What are some of those essentials that you have to, at some point, bring in? And my, one of my points I wanted to bring up to you is in, is in chapter 5, verse 20. Go back to chapter 5, verse 20, about this message of the gospel. Before we go on and look at some of these words about uh, Peter... 
Acts 5, verse 20. Right. So did you notice the title on my chart this morning? Is it's the whole message of this life. We are to know the whole story. It is not a, what we call a lollipop gospel that, or a simple believism. It isn't, you just say, I believe, and that's it. Because it, you said you believe, then that's all there is to it. But that's not, that isn't all there is to it. The whole counsel of God's word says that you must be pickled. There needs to be a true transformation in your life, some evidences that there's a transformation, right? Um, Secondarily, if we look at the contrast between his belief and the people's belief, we see something real significant. Go back to chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and what do we see? When the people are, are assessed at the end of their believing, right, What does it say about their life? They're not wandering around watching miracles and trying to buy the power to do that. What are they doing? Devoted to apostles' teachings. Teaching, fellowship. Breaking of bread. And prayer. Wow. What a contrast that is. If you can't see that, that I mean, that's really amazing to me. That's in 2, and it goes on, 42 to 47. It also talks about that they had all things in common. They were selling their property. They weren't trying to gain something financially. They were trying to gain um, a, a physical benefit so that, that they could have more admiration from the people to themselves, which seems like that's what Simon is doing here, potentially. Um, And I'm saying potentially only because I do believe that he is not saved. That is my ascertaining of this. My conclusion is he does not know the Lord. But there are some who would say simply because it says he believed, that that means he believed. Yes. Yes, exactly. And there's another one that's even... um, There's another one, too, that says, let me think. Um, James says, in one twenty six. also, it says, there is a religion that is worthless. It has no benefit, no value. It doesn't produce anything, right? Remember when we studied that? Also, um, I'm sorry, Lisa, go ahead. You go ahead. Yeah. And it could be that he believed what he was doing more than what what he was preaching, potentially. I would say I affirm that from the perspective of everything else that's shown to us that follows it. Okay? So it to me it's like this. Okay, you can look at one word he believed and say, Well, that settles that he's a believer. But then I'm gonna say to you, then you have to absolutely wipe out everything else that follows it what his response is in comparison to the other people, and what Peter says of him, which we're going to look at now. Katie, I agree with what you're saying. If you, if you look at what Simon had his eyes on, he had his eyes on the miracles and signs. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that clinched it for me was in verse 24 when he said, they told him to pray, and he said, pray for yourselves, so that 
nothing of what you have said may come to me because you're a better magician. Yeah, right. Maybe. Maybe. I agree. I absolutely agree. Now, absolutely. And so I'm in, I am, you now know, full disclosure, you now know where I stand. I believe he was not a, a safe person. However, if you still want to stand in the court that he is a safe person, the scathing rebuke that Peter gives is still valid. If he's a baby Christian needing to be rebuked and retrained and retaught, then he goes through and he and he says to him, you need to repent and you don't know God and all these things about him. But I would say word studies of the word believe says that believed is simply a the the catalyst of believing, if you develop it fully in the Word of God, believing must be accompanied also by indications of true belief. There needs to be something in your life. If you are put on trial for being a Christian, would you be convicted? Okay? That's really kind of what, well, true, I know, we laugh at that, but it's true. I want to be convicted. Take my head off, you know? Not really. But, and you guys be nice to me this morning, right? And you are. Okay, the other thing is I look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3 where it's the letters to the churches. And how often in there is Jesus saying to the churches, you still need to buy from me all these things, right? And if you, by the way, want to inherit these things which I'm promising for you, then you must overcome you must be overcomers. And he's implying they are not overcomers. He is also rebuking within those churches those who are tolerating this kind of sin in their midst. So he does too. There's only two churches in there that are given affirmations. The other five are basically pretty much condemned, saying, look, you still need from me salvation. You need to have white garments so that you might walk with me, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Now, Simon, it doesn't say whether he got the Spirit or not. That's another thing. It does say that the apostles laid on hands and the people received it. Now, you could, you could assume that that means Simon received it too, but it doesn't really say that. But I think it's very interesting is this. 1 Corinthians 15, she had us go there and look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1, uh, 1 to 8. And he, in verse 2, it says that, that you must hold fast the word which I preached to you unless... You believed in vain. So that particular verse tells us what is the potential. You can believe in vain. You might even make a profession of faith that you believed, but it may not be true that it might be in vain. And so Peter, uh, Paul, in that case, is actually challenging people, examine yourself to see whether you're really in the faith. And believed. But it's not the full picture. But, right. Um, John 1.12 probably says it better than anything else. Is as many as received him, those that believe in him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So receiving Jesus is part of belief. Okay, and here's an even better one for you guys. You want one that's really simple? Go to 1 John. The gospel of 1 John, these things have been written that you might know that you have this salvation. Go, go with me to 1 John chapter uh, 5, and it's going to be verse 13. 
I want you to see this because the whole book is written that you might be able to evaluate your personal walk with God and say whether or not you, can, can you and I look at one another? Can you look at me and say, Katie has the Holy Spirit? Can you look at me on my face and just say, physical? yeah, there's a mark. I see the golden cross on the forehead. No, I sure wish we had one. I want one of those marks like it talks about in the end time, you know, the mark on the, so that you can walk into a room and go, ooh, cross, cross, cross. I love that. Did I tell you guys about a piece of artwork my daughter did one time where it was a street scene and um, was pe- like firemen were there and policemen and people pushing their babies and strollers. And it was just kind of cobblestone streets. And it was mostly done in dark browns and golden yellows. This was an art assignment a teacher had given to her when she was going to school. And in there then, in the, in the bodies of some of the individuals was a, a golden yellow light that was kind of glowing from them. You could see who had the Holy Spirit and who was in darkness. And their bodies were more in shadow and they were there and they were doing things. And then there were other people there helping them like the fireman who had the Spirit of God in him and he's rescuing somebody. That symbolic picture there in that. It's a really cool piece of art. But I've always thought, wouldn't that be cool? Go out on the streets and go, ooh, look, she's glowing. She's got Jesus. But can we, do we have that? No. So, in um, 1 John 5.13, it says this. Hold on. Now I've got to find it. 1 John. Okay, verse 12. He, yeah, okay. Well, let's go to 11. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things, meaning all of this book of 1 John, these things have been written to you who believe in the the name of the Son of God. So in other words, there's a, a verbal testimony that you believe, right? And then he says, but in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So in other words, there are people who can say, I believe, but how do you know that you have eternal life? You need to evaluate the whole of your life story, the whole of your life picture, okay? So First John, let me just rend- uh, do a rendition. You, chapter 1, you walk in light, right? In other words, you confess sin and, and so forth. Number 2, you abide, faithfully stay in God's commandments. You don't desert your faith. So if you know a person who's made a claim, like I've told you of a person in my life who's done that and then walked away years later and is, is totally in defiance of it at this point and has been habitually now for years and years, you know that person never knew, even though they made a claim to it, but they walk away. They're not truly gods. Um, you, uh, in chapter 3, you habitually practice righteousness, not sin. And I throw that word habitually in there to say it doesn't mean that you don't on occasion sin, and it doesn't mean on occasion you don't even do righteously because we're all able to still yet sin in our human flesh. However, it's the habit of your life. When I look at you in the big picture, not a snapshot, but a big picture, what do I see habitually in your life? Are you a righteous living person who loves to please God? And the answer, if the answer is yes, you, yes, you see yourself in that way, then that would be an affirmation that you know the Lord. Chapter four, you abide in God's love and you love one another. Do you love people? To other people's lives and their hurts and their joys, does that all uh, bring to you a sense of both mutual relationship with them, but also responsibility to either help them or exhort them or kick their butt, you know, if they have to have that done, which occasion I do. Okay, chapter 5 is the last statement. You know what chapter 5 is? You believe Jesus is the Christ. 
So that is only one quality of how we know someone is saved. It also encompasses how they relate to their understanding that they're a sinner and that there, there needs to be confession of sin. They're, they're understanding that that's required. That they abide in God's commandments habitually. They stay there. They don't desert it. They, um, they practice righteousness. They abide in God's love. And they're people, they love people. And yes, they make a confession that they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So First John is a great one to go to. All right, now let's do this very fast because we're out of time. But I do want to hit these words for you. Peter's rebuke. Let's look at the rebuke. If you do a word study on these rebukes, you're going to be so shocked. He says to them, may your silver perish with you in verse 20. This means, this word perish is damnable, under destruction, perish, and waste. Okay? Then, basically, Peter says to him, you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. And what does Peter say to him? You have no part and you have no portion in this matter. What matter is he talking about? the matter of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying in that, no part, no portion, it means you have no part, no share, no inheritance. And the part which one will have in eternal salvation is part of that definition. So you have no part in eternal salvation. That's what he's saying to him. Um, This matter concerns that Holy Spirit. Now, he says a blatant statement, your heart is not right with God. We don't even have to look that one up. We know what that means. Repent of this wickedness. Wickedness means... Evil, depravity, malice, desire to injure, wickedness that is not ashamed to break laws. Would you call that a Christian? Would you call that somebody who has the Holy Spirit? No. Now, I would say there are, there are Christians who can fall into sin and do sin, but, but I think this definition of wickedness is beyond what most of them do. I, I, I would venture to say that kind of, it's pretty hard for me to believe that someone who has the Holy Spirit would go to this level that, he's, that is being defined in the Greek. And remember, when, when he is speaking and he's using that Greek language or that original language that they were using, it was very precise. When he spoke to Simon, Simon knew exactly what he was saying to him. You are, you are in a position of damnation. You have no part in this inheritance and no part with the Holy Spirit. You are in wickedness. You are evil, right? And he says... Um, You are in the gall of bitterness in 23. That means deep jealousy. Now, this is what Brenda brought up earlier. It looks to us like he's just observing what's going on and wanting to have a part in that to, again, exalt himself as he had earlier, being called the great power of God and having all the peoples follow him. So here it says, you are in the gall of bitterness, and it means deep jealousy, terrible envy, and extreme wickedness. So again, it ties in the wickedness as a motive to this gall of bitterness, all right? Last one is that you are then in the bondage of iniquity. It's an act of unrighteousness, unjust doing or a wrong. And, and hold on a second, because there was more to that. Unjust. Um, oh, good for you. You did more. Go ahead. Act of unrighteousness. Okay. So although I suppose you might could take that kind of a definition that Peter, through this same inspiration of God, who has given him authority to either bind or loose, 
who actually came there for the purpose of exercising that authority to bind or loose. Yes, I, I see that they have received the true gospel, the full gospel message, and therefore he laid on hands and they received the Spirit. And in that same moment and in that same storyline, God shows us where he rebukes someone who said they believed, but he is, he is rejecting him. I think he's showing us this exercise of spiritual authority. And it's a spiritual authority, by the way, that you and I also have. The spiritual authority that we have to be able to both bind or loose. And it's the spiritual authority that we receive by spiritual inspiration. Just as Peter did when, when Jesus said, my father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. So he came there to assess if the full gospel had been given. And therefore to then either approve or disapprove if they had enough of the, of the truth of the gospel. And, the, and they did. And then he laid hands on them. But, but of Simon... He rebukes, and he says, you have no part, no inheritance in this thing called this Holy Spirit. You need to repent, and you need to pray that if perhaps God could forgive you. Now, my thought would be, if it's a Christian, there has been forgiveness. It's a once-for-all thing. It's called justification, right? So it would be more of a refreshing or a splashing. First John talks about it, and it shows you the contrast in First John. The, the Christian goes to God for refreshing, for splashing. It's not, it's not washing away of sins and justification. It's a sprinkling of water that cleanses, wipes off the dirty stuff that gets caught on us as we move along. It's a beautiful contrast between that and what he's saying here. So I would say you have to assess what you think about Simon, but I think what's more importantly is what are you seeing about the picture of the church, how it's to function, right? The idea that we are to have this spiritual authority to appraise or, or to, to affirm, to bind or to loose, is the text puts it. Yes. Yeah, that did the clincher for me was he had said he had, you have no portion of this. Yeah, the yeah. Has a Absolutely. And he shouldn't have to, perhaps God will forgive you. The, the bottom line is, what is the one sin that you, can, that you commit that God will not forgive you? blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is rejection of the Holy Spirit, which means it's also rejection of this whole message of who Jesus is, right? So by that message, you would not be forgiven, and that's the implication here. Perhaps he'll forgive you, but what must Simon do if he wants that kind of forgiveness? He has to believe this message and get his eyes off of the activity of the magic tricks that he thinks he's seeing, which he has appraised improperly. It's not even been spiritually appraised properly. He's not watching them do magic tricks. He's seeing them exercise spiritual authority that was given to them to establish this thing called the church. Cool. What a great, was a bunch to cover.